We're starting today our, our series, our Advent series, called the miracle or called the, the a Child Is Born, and um, we're going to be using the scripture text Isaiah chapter nine and verse six as our text as our text over these next four weeks. And so today, as we begin this Advent series, stretching from now all the way to Christmas called The Child is Born. Each week we're going to be looking at one of the titles that was given to Jesus that we find in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. So why don't we just pray as we begin this morning with Jesus. And the first title that was given to him in this verse was Wonderful Counselor. So why don't you bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Lord, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable to us. So, Lord, as we look into your word now, as we open our Bibles, we ask that you would give us the meaning and the spirit of your word. And, Lord, as it's before our natural eyes, give us the spiritual insight. Give us spiritual sight and illumination. Apply your word, Lord, with power to our souls. For whatever the needs are in this room, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Whatever it might be, Lord, whatever the needs are, lead us, Lord, to see wonderful things in your word. And let it build us up today. Let it comfort us. Let it edify us. Let it strengthen us this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, at first glance, we might read this phrase, wonderful counselor, and we might be tempted to reduce the term down to maybe the idea that Jesus is just a really good psychologist, right? (laughs) But that is not what is meant here by the phrase wonderful counselor. I mean, it's no secret today that counseling is big business today. It started gaining popularity as a profession in the early 20th century, and in our present day, we are saturated with counselors and counseling services. People meet with counselors for a host of reasons to get help for a host of problems. And though I'm no expert, I am aware that there are many approaches to counseling. And many of those approaches, as I'm sure that we're all aware, are based on a flawed view of human nature and a godless, atheistic worldview. I mean, if we take, for example, some of the well-known human, uh, you know, some of the well-known people in the past, even in this last century, uh, a humanist psychologist named Carl Rogers, he believed that people were intrinsically good and that if given just the right conditions, that people could find their way and achieve their highest potential. And maybe another influential name you've heard of is is Abraham uh, Maslow, who created a model called the hierarchy of needs. 
to explain what drives human motivation. He believed that humanity's greatest need was to achieve this thing he called self-actualization. In other words, the best version of ourselves, our ideal self. I mean, with all the complex theories that man has developed to try and describe, explain, predict, and change human behavior, we still can't escape the fact that our world is broken. And humanism and the counsel that comes from it permeates our society with this lie that the answers to our brokenness lie within ourselves. And maybe just through education or our own potential for human goodness that we can make a better world. And although this false light of humanism, which boasts in the glory of man apart from God, it keeps getting shorted out by the ugly reality of our fallenness, which we see amplified day after day and week after week with each new headline in the news. You know, I'm sure many of us have heard of the attack uh, on the parade in Wisconsin this past week or the rising crime rates in cities across the country and the violence in schools. But many people would prefer to not let go of their faith that humanity can somehow find a way to create a utopian society. I mean, whatever it might be that humanists can claim as evidence to prop up the idea of humanity's progress can really only in truth be attributed to God's common grace, which is the only thing that keeps the world from spiraling headlong into utter depravity and darkness and destruction. The reality today is that people are walking in darkness and they don't even know what makes them stumble. Proverbs 4, verse 19 says this. It says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness, and they do not know what makes them stumble. So what is wrong with our world today is not a lack of education or a lack of self-esteem or a hierarchy of needs that are going unfulfilled or systemic oppression by elitist power structures. The problem, the primary problem is that all have sinned and are constantly falling short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, as it says in Romans, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so when one's life is turned in on itself and God is set aside and one lives as though God didn't exist, there can only be one result which the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1. And I'll read just in verse, uh, starting in verse 18 in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Continuing on here. Claiming to be wise, 
they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness and malice. And they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful, inventors of evil and disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Our world is broken. And upon the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 9, We have the first few chapters of Isaiah. And these first few chapters speak of a dark time in the history of Israel where the people had turned their backs on God, calling what is evil good and good evil, saying that dark is light and light is dark, saying that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Sounds just like our day. And Isaiah prophesies of God's impending judgment and says in chapter 5, verse 24, They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as trash in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, speaking of Assyria and Babylon. And he'll whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they'll come. None of them is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose or a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, this is speaking of Assyria. And all their bows are bent, and their horses and And the hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like the lion, and like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, and they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. This is a dark time in the history of Israel. And even as Isaiah is commissioned by the Lord in chapter 6, the Lord says to him, Go and say to this people, Isaiah, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, 
and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty and their houses are deserted and the whole country is a desolate wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as an oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. So we see here a glimpse of hope in the midst of this sorrow and darkness. Even though God's people had utterly forsaken him, he would not utterly forsake them. Amen? But his promise would remain that a remnant would return. And this brings us into the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. And I want us to read that. If you guys have it on the screen, we can put that up. It says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And as they are glad when they, dis- when they divide the spoil, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This child that would be born, this son that was to be given, would be called Wonderful Counselor. Why would he be given that title? What is so significant about it? And why does it matter for us today? What does this term wonderful mean? At first glance, I think we can easily miss the depth of this word. We use the word wonderful to describe something we admire, something beautiful, right? But it's been so overused in dialogue today that it's come to be a pretty vague term. Someone does you a favor and you respond by saying, Oh, how wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Or a teacher congratulates their student and says, You did a wonderful job on that assignment. Or someone says, Boy, that food was wonderful. Right? 
So when we read that Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor, what does Isaiah mean by using this word, wonderful? Well, this word is used several other times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for wonderful. And almost always, it refers to something miraculous, something marvelous. It refers to something supernatural, something that exceeds expectations. For example, this word was used in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel had just seen God bring them through the Red Sea and shatter Pharaoh's army. They were singing these words in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. They sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's that word wonderful. And they were singing praise to God, and they were talking about this event as something wonderful, something miraculous, something supernatural and out of the ordinary. And since Isaiah here is speaking of Jesus as a wonderful counselor, I think we can find insight into the nature of this counsel that Christ gives us. Meaning that Christ doesn't just simply give us good counsel tips and good strategies that will just help us to, to, to get by or to cope or to survive when we're in difficult circumstances. No, no, Jesus is unlike every other counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. He's not like earthly counselors. He is a wonderful counselor. He counsels us in such a way that takes us to the miraculous. The result of his counsel far exceeds our expectations. And the result of following God's counsel is something miraculous. He is that type of a counselor. He is a counselor who's able to give miraculous results. And even Isaiah says this in, elsewhere in Isaiah, in, in his book, chapter 28, verse 29. He says of the Lord, he is wonderful in counsel, and excellent in wisdom. So I want to look at a couple examples here of God's wonderful counsel. I mean, where do we see the wisdom? Where do we see the wonderful counsel of God displayed in Scripture? What did it look like for God's people in history? And what does it look like for us today? Most of us are probably familiar with, with these stories. But just like the psalmist said in verse 9, or in Psalm 9, uh, verse 1, it is good for us to recount all of God's wonderful deeds. So you might remember in the book of Joshua, we read of how God had promised to bring his people Israel into their own land, a place of rest that he'd given them to possess. Joshua had been called to lead them, Moses was dead, and now it was time for them to cross the Jordan River. And so God's counsel comes to his people. In Joshua chapter 3, Joshua told the Israelites, Come and listen to what the Lord your God says. 
Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, and as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark went ahead of them. Now, if I had been with that company, I think I would have had my doubts as to how successful this attempt at crossing the Jordan was going to be. Because it says in the next verse that it was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priest who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adame, which is near Zarathan. And the water below that flowed onto the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. And then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Now, it'd be one thing if the Jordan River was, you know, if it was a dry drought season and the, barely flowing and the river dried up. But it says this was during the time of the harvest when the river was overflowing its banks. And all of a sudden it dries up. Miraculous. So meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, they stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. And then they waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. He is a wonderful counselor. Amen? And then shortly thereafter, we read of God counseling the people again as they come, as they face Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 5, the Lord says again to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all of its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the city once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. And on the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can, and then the walls of the city will collapse, and the people can charge straight in. Again, this seems kind of like odd counsel in light of natural laws. I mean, imagine if all of us <laughs> were marching around this plaza for, for six days, and Caleb or Mike says, all right, guys, now on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times. And then we're going to blow some trumpets and we're going to shout as loud as we can. And the walls are going to fall down flat. <laughs> Caleb's. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Not so sure that would be a bad thing to reconstruct the walls, right? <laughs> but come on. Sure, that doesn't sound absurd at all. Right? Let's get on that. God's told us, and we're going to do it. Wonderful counsel. And so Joshua in chapter 6, the people did as Joshua told them. And when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the Israelites charged straight into the city and captured it. Is he not a wonderful counselor? 
And again, in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 9, our text for this series, we read about a reference to yet another example of God's wonderful counsel. It refers in verse 4 to the day of Midian. What was that all about? In chapter 6 of the book of Judges, here Israel had failed again. And they'd not obeyed the Lord's voice. And so the Lord had given them into the hand of their enemies, the Midianites. And in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord had handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. And the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And whenever the Israelites had planted their crops, the marauders from Midian and Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel. And they would camp in the land and they'd destroy the crops. And they left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the donkeys. These enemy hordes coming in with their, with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. And they arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And then we come to verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, of one of the clans of Israel. And his son Gideon was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, here's the wonderful counsel, I am with you, and I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And so Gideon asked three times for a sign because he's not sure about this counsel. This doesn't seem like wise counsel, given the natural circumstances, right? But as the situation progresses, we come to chapter 7, where Midian had formed a formidable force against Israel, and God's counsel comes again to Gideon in verse 2. And he says in Judges 7, verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. What? What? You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. And so guess what? 22,000 of them went home. Leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But it doesn't stop there. 
the Lord tells Gideon again, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. So then Gideon takes his warriors down to the water, and the Lord tells him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. And only 300 of the men drank from their hands. And all the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. And the Lord tells Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. And so Gideon collects the provisions and ram's horns and the other warriors and sends, and sends them home. But he keeps 300 men with him. And then they went out as God had told them, as God had counseled them. And in verse 15, Gideon shouts, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. And he divides the 300 men into three groups, even smaller, and, and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not, that's not a great uh, battle strategy you know, a ram's horn and uh, a clay jar with a torch in it. I don't know how much damage I could do, maybe a little bit, but he says to them, Gideon says to his warriors, keep your eyes on me, and when I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, and all around the entire camp, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. And so it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and those hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. And suddenly, they blew the ram's horns, and they broke their clay jars. And then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. And they held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands. And they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords, and the Lord gave them the victory. The Lord's counsel never fails. Amen? He is a wonderful counselor. And there are many other stories that we could talk about, but this, what is so characteristic, and what I want us to see this morning, what is so characteristic of the counsel that God gives, and what makes it wonderful, is that it drives us away from ourselves, and it takes us to the miraculous. It crushes our self-sufficiency, and it steers us away from our tendency to save ourselves. Because, see, we love common-sense strategies. We like intuitive solutions. We're used to those things because it's how this fallen world works. But when it comes to living under grace, when it comes to walking by the Spirit of God and carrying out the will and the purposes of God, we can't rely on the strategies and the methods and the wisdom of this world. 
We need to listen to our wonderful counselor who says things like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? And where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. Amen? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you and I are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ is both the one who counsels us, and he is the counsel that we need. Amen? Because we cannot accomplish God's will and God's purposes through our own power and through our own cleverness. The Holy Spirit, who is also called the the Comforter, the Advocate, and the Helper, he counsels us. And this counsel will always point us away from ourselves and toward Christ. So I want to ask you today, are you restless today? Are you facing a spiritual battle? Go to the wonderful Counselor in prayer and let him speak to you. Are you defeated today? Are you battered by your own failures and sin? The wonderful counselor says, lift your eyes because your righteousness is in heaven. Are you rejoicing in his peace and goodness today? Thank him for his wonderful counsel. Are you eager and hungry to know him more today? Go to him, sit at his feet and learn of him. He says in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So why don't we pray this morning as Caleb comes. Lord, I simply want to pray what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, So, Lord, we pray and I pray today that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Lord, I ask that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you for our wonderful counselor today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.